Dice rolls are less fun than real sports. <laughs> what are the odds? Who knew? Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is May 5th, 2020, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me from a window on my laptop, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hey, Neil. Hey, Sarah. That's where I live now. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to be there, I think. Yeah. Um, and from another window on my laptop, 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hey, Jeff. I'm always a window on your laptop. You are. That's you basically could. the only way I know you anymore. It's very sad. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jeff, I, you know, normally... In 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 olden times, we would have been talking right now about how much money you had lost betting on the Kentucky Derby. So isn't that nice that you didn't lose any money? Did or you did bet you bet on the virtual on the ghost? derby? Yeah, did you bet on no, the ghost horses? No, but uh, I wasn't joking. I bet on the Arkansas Derby, and uh, I lost a lot of money. So nothing really <laughs> changed. Nothing. <laughs> Everything changed. is the same. That's nice. In fact, in fact, I don't know if you saw this. Actually, I know you didn't see this. <laughs> the Arkansas Derby was split into because they had so many horses that wanted to get in. It was split into two races, so I had two. I lost uh, twice as much as normal. Oh, Jeff! Uh, both favorites won. Both Baffert horses. One named Nadal, which you might nice. like, sir. I do. And one named Charlatan. So it was really chalky. It was just favorites, you know. Which I don't usually bet the favorites, so not not my day. Not my day. Well, Jeff, did you watch the virtual derby, though? I did. I okay. did. All right. And you know what? Pretty chalky. Yeah, I know. Chalky. I know. I liked it. It was my kind of derby. Who could have I, thought that Secretariat would have won? <laughs> I do think the way it was executed with the, the way they did the race call and the graphics, everyone should watch it. It's, it's really cool. And they obviously, uh, like, baked in the run, because there's different, you know, running styles and having Seattle Slough trying to go wire to wire as a front runner, which is the way a lot of horses run, and uh, Secretary kind of stalking the lead, and then American Pharaoh making a big move. I mean, it, it was, like, well done, but I, it was it was not exactly surprising. Right, yeah, and I'm not saying that they did it badly or that we did it badly either when we did our simulations. I just think, like... It's sort of a not that we needed convincing that live sports are better than not live sports, but like you do realize how it's really hard to simulate the kind of upsets or quirks that happen when things are happening live. Dice rolls are less fun than real sports. <laughs> what are the odds? Who not knew? if you played MLB Showdown. Not if um, you played shout out to Rabbit Hole last year. That's it. That's a really good point. On today's show, we'll talk to Meg Lenahan of The Athletic about the latest ruling in the U.S. women's national team lawsuit against the U.S. Soccer Federation and where that case goes from here. We'll survey where major American sports leagues are in their reopening plans, which leagues are facing the most challenges, and who could possibly start up the soonest. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Last Friday, Judge R. Gary Klossner threw out a large portion of the equal pay lawsuit filed against the U.S. Soccer Federation by the U.S. Women's National Team. In an interesting twist, as theorized by our friend Caitlin Murray at Yahoo Sports, the fact that the U.S. Men's National Team was so bad over the period in question may have actually contributed to the ruling. The judge sided with the USSF's payment calculations finding that the women's team made more money than the men by about $8,000 per game. He dismissed the fact that the women made close to the maximum amount possible on their contract by playing many more games than the men's team and by, of course, winning two World Cup titles. Instead, Klausner based his ruling on differences in the men's and women's collective bargaining agreements. There was a lot of surprise that the judge's ruling went as far as it did, and former U.S. national team player Julie Foudy had this to say about it on ESPN SportsCenter. But a part of me had been hopeful for from the player side of me for for months now that the players and U.S. soccer would come to the table, that they would settle because in the back of our minds, in the back of the players' minds, they also knew that going to trial could also be a dangerous path. Case in point, right? Here is is the problem with that. And so I'm a bit frustrated for whatever reason. I get there's a lot of animosity on both sides that they never were able to get to the table because I think it's a lost opportunity. 
So to break down what the women's national team can achieve now on equal pay, we are delighted to be joined once again by the athletics, Meg Linehan. Hi, Meg. Hello. How are you? Great. So you had to deal with yet another Friday night decision drop. Has every filing in this case come on a Friday night? Almost. I think we've gotten one Monday, maybe a Tuesday, but they (laughs) sure do love post 7 p.m. I mean, we've gotten some that has been 11 o'clock at night, 1130. So it's, it's been a lot of late nights. I'll put it that way. Yeah, well, you've been a trooper covering it. But I, whenever I see you tweeting on Friday night, I'm like, oh, no, <laughs> poor Meg. <laughs> um, so first off, Meg, can you explain what the ruling of summary judgment means in this case? Sure. So in this case, everybody really expected the U.S. national team versus U.S. soccer to actually go to trial. Instead, there's just this procedural thing where both sides say, hey, we'd like you to consider that we're actually right, right, directly to the judge. And the judge can say, oh, actually, I agree with one of you, or I agree with both of you to some extent. And that's pretty much what happened here, where uh, Klausner looked at the case, looked at the two sort of back and forth sets of filings and said, actually, I mostly agree with U.S. soccer. And I'm going to completely dismiss the player's um, argument based on the Equal Pay Act. And just that one is now off the table entirely, found completely in favor of U.S. soccer. And the one that he did um, consider could still go to trial for the players is a very limited chunk of this lawsuit that really deals with support staff and travel. And that's the only part that will actually now continue on to trial, assuming that a settlement now does not happen somewhere down the line. Meg, I continue to be confused about the time frame for comparing compensation here. The, the window was 2015 to 2019, which I, I assume that's based on when women's players had to be members of the national team to be included in the original class action. Is that right? Essentially, right. Um, they're kind of limited in the scope of the lawsuit itself in terms of the actual, like when players were on the team, again, that, that is definitely part of the class action component of this lawsuit. But you're right that in this case, it makes it very tough for the women's national team players because it does not include 2014, which was a very productive and, uh, you know, nice revenue time for the men's national team, which might have changed the scope of this case a little bit. Right. I mean, it really seems like they're the the money in those time frames are apples to oranges. I mean, the the two World Cups for the women to just be involved in and the only one opportunity even for the men. It just seems that's the part I just keep, I can't get over every time I I think about this because it doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. I mean, really all the parts of this case have always been to some extent apples and oranges because you have two completely different collective bargaining agreements at play here. You have two very different sort of periods of revenue. You have two very different periods of results because yes, you have the women winning two back-to-back World Cups, 2015 to 2019, and then the men missing out on qualification, period. So it's always been this sort of two different worlds that are technically under the same umbrella of U.S. soccer. But really what it boils down to that is the most difficult to really put in that same conversation are the two collective bargaining agreements, which have actually proven to be, again, really crucial to this case. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that apples to oranges thing, because is it kind of is it wrong to think of this as being almost like, you know, the U.S. women are a huge fish in a relatively smaller pond, you know, in the Women's World Cup versus the Men's World Cup, whereas the U.S. men's team is a very small fish in this huge uh, pond in terms of revenue for the Men's World Cup. Uh, Is is that the right way to think of this, that it's just, you know, sort of the, the judge is almost ruling that, you know, it doesn't matter that you're the biggest fish in the smaller pond that uh, it, it's somehow that's not uh, an, a source of inequality between the two teams. Yeah, I mean, it's really tough because you we have so many layers to this in which we actually consider the U.S. national team, right? Like, obviously, we're trying to look at it from this U.S. national team, U.S. soccer point of view, but then there's also the wider world of FIFA at play as well. And fundamentally, this is about contracts signed with U.S. soccer. So we are trying to say, okay, Does it make sense that even though results have been very different, maybe the level of competition is very different, the U.S. women's national team is the best in the world? Like, I mean, fundamentally, I think Friday night's decision does kind of feel like in some elements, 
like the team is being punished for their own excellence, right? They have won every single thing that really could have been asked for of them, save, you know, the 2016 Olympics, which in turn probably directly contributed to them actually going back to back in, in two World Cups, right? That's really been their only major failing of, I mean, <laughs> really the last decade of this team. So there is some element to this of because they're so good. And, and we even saw this in earlier filings, right? Like all of this sort of toxic stuff that, that lawyers for U.S. soccer were using a couple months ago where they were saying, okay, well, no strength and no skill is comparable between the two teams. But also one of those arguments was, well, the men have to play all these like really good soccer teams. Like you, you got to think about that. And like, they have to go to Mexico and it's really hard for them because it's hostile audiences. Whereas, I mean, the U.S. women's national team is kind of universally adored. So there's multiple elements to this team kind of being punished for being the best. Yeah. And, and that's a, an interesting point about the connections, too, is that, you know, the reason why the women signed the CBA the way they did was to be able to get more guaranteed money, right? Like it was sort of more of a security based uh, play when they originally signed that, whereas the men had a lot more, you know, the average player on the men, men's team, um, you know, had a lot more variation in how much they might make depending on how good they were basically. But that, that also plays into the, the weaker negotiating place that the women were in and just, uh, you know, the fact that they don't have the, the amount of money that, you know, potentially men's players could make in professional leagues and things like that, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really, the players really did not want the judge to be considering just straight up total compensation, right? Or even total compensation per game. And that is exactly the number that gets cited in Friday night's decision. They're thinking about, okay, what is the, the potential? Like if, if the U.S. men's national team has our record, right? Not even necessarily number of games, but like does similar stuff. What is their rate of compensation? So if Michael Bradley steps in and has Megan Rapinoe's record, he's probably making three or four times what Megan Rapinoe is making. The problem is, is that that argument kind of got essentially set aside by Klausner simply because he's saying, okay, well, you've agreed to this collective bargaining agreement, right? And now that you realize that it won't necessarily make you as much money, you've already signed it. And so there's a lot of context around that too, in terms of historical negotiations of the two collective bargaining agreements, like the women have historically been in a, in a much weaker position to negotiate collective bargaining agreements until maybe this decade, right? So their rate of growth in terms of, you know, compensation is at a much lower curve than the men's national team. And it would have exploded, I guess, in this past kind of cycle. So there's, there's a lot to it, but fundamentally, Klausner's going, okay, well, ultimately, you did actually make more than men, and you've also agreed to this collective bargaining agreement, so we're done here. I did find it interesting, too, that, you know, one of the criticisms of the women's team is that they didn't ask for what the men have. But, you know, Megan Rapino said on Good Morning America that they were never offered that kind of a contract. So to think that they could have just, like, oh, this is what we want, and then gotten it is sort of ridiculous. It's They weren't being offered those kinds of levels of pay in the yeah, first place. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, there's always been two different stories about what was offered, what was on the table, um, what the women wanted versus what the Federation wanted. And, and that's kind of, you know, there's some stuff on the record in the court case of the CBA negotiations. So we have little pieces of it, but it really has turned into this kind of like, well, they never, they never offered that to us and there we did. And, you know, so there's still some middle version of the story where the truth actually is. But um, I, I do think that it's interesting because from the U.S. soccer side, really, I guess the, the strength of the current setup for CBA negotiation is you have the men and women separately. So you can kind of use them against each other in some ways. Whereas I think for the men and women, they look at it and say, well, maybe we can leverage previous, like the men got this, so we should ask for this. The women got this, so we should ask for this. Like you can build off of each other, but it, it definitely is a very interesting setup, I think for both sides in terms of being able to, to play against competing interests of the two national teams. 
So then, Meg, where do you think things go from here? Are they going to appeal this decision? Is it possible to kind of get another say on this? Or do you think that they'll try to negotiate a settlement? Yeah, I mean, the, the players have said they plan to appeal. It's not necessarily as straightforward as just appealing to the the next level of court because it's not actually like the finding from a trial. It's a summary judgment. So you actually essentially have to get permission to appeal. So that's struggle number one. But I think now maybe this is the spark that gets a settlement really happening. And, and part of the other, it's not just the court case, right? Like there's still so much public sentiment, like the fact that we're doing this podcast, the fact that Joe Biden is out here tweeting at U.S. soccer, like you better give the women what they deserve or you're not getting World Cup funding. That public pressure hasn't gone away for U.S. soccer. And I think that's why when we saw their statement on Friday night, there was no gloating like the court has justified our entire position this entire time. Like they've they've really taken some hits in terms of their brand and the fact that Carlos Cordero had to resign. So I think settlement is probably the most likely next step, but there could still, in theory, you know, technically there's still going to be a trial in terms of travel and support staff stuff. But I think settlement is is most likely what we're going to see next. It does seem like the best option for the for U.S. soccer, given the the PR hit they keep they keep taking. But but who knows? Um, so, you know, so the women's CBA, their current CBA expires on December 31st, 2021. The men's CBA actually expired you know, in on, in December of 2018, and they're still playing under the terms of that contract. Is there a chance we'll have a joint CBA negotiated at some point? Or are the two sides still just too different to want to do that? I think it would be interesting. I know that um, a lot of former players have kind of raised that as a potential. I think Julie Foudy is one of the ones who is, I think, most in favor of that. I I don't think it's impossible, but I think that we haven't really heard a lot of actual men's national team players speak directly to this. It's been a lot through their union and a little bit less through the players. So I'm not entirely sure how much communication is going on behind the scenes between the men's and women's national team players. And and I think maybe if that conversation hit a new level, they would start to consider like, do we really benefit from doing this independently? Do we benefit if we move together? We both think that we're undervalued, right? Like the men's national team has been hitting the federation very hard via their union statements to say like, actually, you, you don't care about either of us. You pay both of us way too little. So I think that they're, they could certainly benefit from negotiating together, but also I think sacrifices are going to have to be made on both sides for a collective bargaining agreement that involves both teams at the same time. Yeah, it seems kind of like the the U.S. Soccer Federation has cast the men's team as the villain in this, that they probably weren't asking for that, you know, uh, either. And, and it's all just part of this play for them to pay everyone less. Right. It's it's very interesting just in terms of, I mean, I've been covering U.S. soccer now for a long time. And every person I've ever really talked to in U.S. soccer has been like a, a perfectly good human being. And then you kind of weigh up what has happened in terms of like hiring lobbyists and the legal arguments and all this kind of stuff. And you're kind of like, okay, you've dug this hole for yourself. And there is a nice potential for them to actually fill that hole back in. Like they have a new president in Cindy Parlo Cohn, who is a former women's national team player who has been through this as a player, right? Who knows this kind of struggle and has lived through absolutely some of the like, historical grossness between the women's national team and the federation. So I think that there is some real potential where you could maybe bury the hatchet a little bit and whether that's via, you know, new negotiations between the men and women at the same time, or whether that's via a settlement and then moving on to saying like, okay, we're stronger together. And ultimately there are bigger issues at play here and we can target FIFA together, right? Like there's, I think that there's a lot of potential here, right? Like, and, and I, I would very much like to be an optimist that if you put the Federation and players on the same side, it's only going to be good for the growth of the sport. But you also have to ensure that the Federation is actually going to have that culture shift internally that really does put them on the side of the players. 
And that's, that's that first step that we have to see and not just necessarily, you know, Cindy Parlo Cohn being on a media call saying, okay, we're going to prioritize settlement. Like what are the actions that are actually going to happen that's going to repair that relationship between the Federation and the women's national team who are ultimately currently their best product. Yeah, that's what's so like depressing. They really missed an opportunity last year with the World Cup and the huge popularity of this team. And instead, you know, we're calling them not strong, not as strong as the men and not as fast as the men and all this stuff by the time when they should have been celebrating them. Yeah, a lot of missed opportunities just in terms of, I mean, like you think about the complete saturation of of this country, like in terms of what it could have done for women's sports, women's soccer, fighting FIFA, like, I mean, the list goes on. I think there were a lot of missed opportunities there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's a good spot for us to leave this discussion for now. Thank you so much for coming by to help us unpack all of this, Meg. Thank you for having me on. Now for a word from this week's sponsor, Allbirds. Even though we're getting used to this strange new time, the world still feels really weird right now. And for those of us who are sheltering at home, it's important to grab some normalcy where we can, or the days will blend into an indistinguishable goop of pajamas and dishes and sitcoms on Netflix, or maybe that's just me. Something that can ground us these days is wearing shoes. Even though we're stuck at home, we can still feel like we're going places and doing things instead of just couch surfing. Allbirds makes shoes from premium, renewable materials. Their products aren't just comfy and purposefully designed. They're carbon neutral as well, thanks to sustainable practices like offsetting their carbon emissions. Allbirds is also a B Corporation, making the environment a stakeholder in their business as well. I just got a pair of Allbirds new tree dashers, which should be especially exciting for sports fans because they're Allbirds' first performance shoe. The company has combined its natural approach to materials with a design that's durable, supportive, and, I can personally confirm, amazingly comfy. With Allbirds, you can feel confident knowing you're wearing a product that's doing right by your feet and the planet. Learn more about their sustainable practices and find your pair at allbirds.com. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com today. All right, we are back, even if sports are not. It has, in fact, been 55 days now since the NBA halted play. And while our perspective has been six weeks of absolute stasis and Michael Jordan documentaries, sports leagues have been working behind the scenes to get ready to restart. So we wanted to take a look at what challenges American sports leagues are facing right now and which leagues look most ready to meet those challenges. We'll start with the NBA, the first league to close, and the league that wants to reopen the fastest. Brian Windhorst had this to say on SportsCenter about the league's state of readiness. You have to keep an eye on the testing. And right now, the NBA is not interested at all in taking any test that would go away from somebody who wants a test or needs a test. They sent a memo to all of their teams last night instructing them, unless your players or staff are sick, do not even seek a test. And here we are, six weeks off the NBA playing its last game, and they're no closer to where they need to be in terms of getting testing. So the NBA has suspended its draft lottery and combine, though not the draft itself quite yet. It doesn't have testing capacity figured out and doesn't know where it will be playing, but it hasn't yet canceled any regular season games for this year. Jeff, does Commissioner Adam Silver need to make more decisions right now or is a wait and see approach the right play? I think it's the right play. I mean, there's there's just so much we don't know. And, and look, it, the the wait and see approach doesn't mean he's sitting there like twiddling his thumbs, you know, you know, working on a Rubik's cube and, and hoping <laughs> he gets a message that everything's clear. And it's I mean, they're working a lot behind the scenes. I guarantee it. Um, but I think right now, in terms of the testing, he he doesn't really know. And I think we, and like every other business, you know, the, the federal government can say what they want and even the governors can say what they want. But it, it, it will be ultimately up to the discretion of these companies to decide when it's a time for their employees to go back to work and when it's safe. It seems like both the NBA and the NHL, they want to finish their regular seasons. I think part of this has to do with just, you know, the fair play of it all teams on the, mm-hmm. on the playoff bubble and all that. I think a lot of it also has to do with a lot of these TV deals, local TV deals, um, which are really important before it goes to the, you know, the national broadcast only in the playoffs. Um, and I think there's money involved in that also. 
So that makes it complicated. And I think what's going to end up happening in the NBA, and I think the NHL likewise, is that they're just the next season, the the 2021 season, is just going to get pushed almost to the end of the year, the Christmas time. And I, I think we've always lobbied that that was probably smart anyway, that November, December, NBA, NHL was always kind of silly. So I think they do have that cushion. So in many ways they have the luxury to extend all through the summer into the fall if they want and then have a, a bigger or more proper off season on the back end of that. I mean, we always say that NBA games don't matter until Christmas anyway. So just yeah. start there and, and, and move on. Right. But I think it's interesting that, you know, it's been reported that the league has these internal models that are uh, saying that an 82 game schedule plus a full 16 team postseason could be completed by early September if they were to kind of come back on June 1st. Uh, and so I, I'm with you, Jeff. It sounds like all of the the momentum is not just for an abbreviation of the season, but they're actually looking at the the possibility, which maybe a month ago we thought was completely unrealistic, that they, w- they would be able to finish the regular season kind of as you know, originally envisioned just at a different time. The other thing that I find interesting is now they're moving to the idea of the optics of testing that, you know, one of the big constraints on the NBA seems to be just the idea that like they could get uh, this huge amount of of testing for all the players if they wanted to, uh, but they're concerned about the way it would look if if the league is getting testing, even if it's through some kind of private um, company, uh, but regular citizens in the U.S. aren't. So I think it's interesting that they're sort of sensitive about the optics of this, and maybe that's because they were the the league that suspended play first and, and almost led the public opinion to go into the lockdown to begin with, they don't want to kind of lose that, that goodwill or that, you know, that, that vision of themselves as being the, the progressive league that is sort of looking out for not just the player's interest, but also, you know, America's interests, if, if it's possible for a league to be viewed that way. Yeah, for sure. And there will still be complaints. I mean, there will always be complaints over that kind of thing. Yeah. And I think the complaints will be coming from the side of the political spectrum that uh, the NBA is sort of most uh, catering to and on on the side of already. And I think that's part of the consideration, too. Like the NFL, you know, and, and to an even greater extent, sports like NASCAR. I mean, that's coming back too. they're trying to kind of do like, uh, what is it, five races in seven days or something like that? Uh, and, uh, you know, at some point in May. And, yeah, they're not going to have fans in the stands, but it's um, – you know, that seems like the sport that will come back the soonest and not really have uh, a PR problem with it because their existing fan base already has been shown to be sort of less concerned at a baseline and more concentrated in states that are reopening. And that's the other factor for the NBA that's sort of pushing this conversation forward is the fact that there are states that are sort of lifting some of the lockdowns and and restrictions on, you know, non-essential businesses. Also, though, interestingly, I mean, this isn't pertain to UFC, obviously, but like NASCAR and golf are pretty socially distant already. I mean, NASCAR, you know, the cars, but I think, you know, that people forget about the pit crews and other people who can't be far apart, but you look, you think, well, yeah, they're driving. Obviously that's fine. And so you sort of forget about all the other things involved. Golf, you know, golf is best enjoyed by yourself, frankly. So, like that, those things contribute to that too. I mean, do, this this should call into question: Do we really need caddies anymore? Like, these <laughs> players should know what club to pull and and how to hit the shot. I mean, come on, like that's that's BS. You're right, and galleries are just getting the way; they're a nuisance. A lot of times, you know, players are saved by the gallery. We've seen this countless times. Oh yeah, when it yeah. hits somebody and makes the lie yeah. better. Or, or, or the you know they used to say the groups behind Tiger's group would get these like tr- uh, trampled out you know roughs and spaces that were you know because of the human traffic would would lead to better lives. And also, if we got rid of the galleries, there's plenty of courses around the country and around the world, in fact, that don't hold the great courses that are PGA caliber that don't hold these events because they don't want the galleries coming in and they don't want to have to like retrofit their whole design for that, you know, like bait and bad and dunes or something like that. You know, like maybe if we got rid of galleries, it could end up being better for golf. Wow. We're fixing golf right now. Didn't, yeah. didn't expect that today. Amazing. So what about the other leagues? So the, and the WNBA 
are they in the same boat as the NBA? They, I mean, they're trying to, they would have started pretty soon here and they're obviously not going to be able to, but are there better solutions there, Jeff, for them? I think the Vegas solution is, is a really interesting one. And, and this goes with the NHL as well. The fact that they have a franchise in Vegas um, helps. Um, the main thing that I think gets overlooked in the planning here is the hotels. Mm. Hotels are really important, especially if you're quarantining a large group of athletes. You can't have them staying at like an Econo Lodge. <laughs> um so Vegas is very appealing because they have all these massive hotels that are just completely dormant. The hotels would do anything to get this kind of um, ticket, you know, like, oh, we have all these people living. Yes, we'll do whatever you want. We'll accommodate. Um, and and you look at the arenas also, the fact that those the WNBA and the NHL have teams there helps a lot. And, and there's certainly there's a new MGM property that has a brand new hotel, which is right near where the Knights play. And um all those places could be co-opted for for this usage but that's important i think that's why you know playing it in the middle of nowhere on some practice field which may be safer is going to complicate complicate things yeah i think that's probably right well let's switch gears and talk about football for a second the nfl just announced that it intends to release its schedule for next season later this week they're proceeding more or less as though things are going to be normal by september Neil, is this confident posture a good thing or they should they be proceeding a little more cautiously? I, you know, I don't really know because, again, we've said this before on the show that they got lucky in the sense that this pandemic didn't hit in the middle of their season. And it actually kind of hit almost at exactly the the polar opposite of the time in the calendar in which they would be playing. It, it really ramped up uh, within a month of the Super Bowl. Uh, and so... You know, they've had that luxury of being able to conduct business as usual or at least as close as possible to it, knowing that oh, September is pretty far off. We don't have to worry about it right now. So it's tough for me to gauge how much of that mentality is still dictating all of their decision making. And, you know, once it gets to be more real for them and, you know, we have more information, but they've talked about other contingencies, at least, you know, they've talked about empty stadiums. They've talked about eliminating bye weeks, uh, not starting until mid-October. There was a report in the Sports Business Journal about that. Um, but they are envisioning at least the idea of having the games played at the usual stadiums and not doing the centralized location plan that we're seeing for a lot of the um the the other sports that they're not considering a centralized location really seem like they can't i mean it would be a thousand people just with the players not even counting the coaching staff and the training staff and all the other people involved to make football happen um i mean it, it does it feels a little head in the sand that they're just like, we're going ahead. Nothing's changing because it would be, a, I mean, having contingencies for when, when, if this thing is still going on in September or if it comes back in a second wave, they're the ones that are least likely to be able to have some other plan. I think ultimately what they might do is, is, is do kind of like almost like, like they're hosting a world cup type format and have, you know, you know, a handful of stadiums designated around the country. So you got, you know, games going in each time zone, but, but also avoiding certain hotspots, like let's say East Rutherford, uh, <laughs> New Jersey. Uh, so I think there will be some creativity there, but I, I, I've said this from the beginning. I'm dubious that there will be fans. I think the idea of fans, we can almost forget. I think all those, um, season tickets will be refunded to some extent. Um, and that's, that's a huge revenue loss yeah. that said. And, you know, Bill Simmons talked about this on his podcast, which was pretty interesting, which is that I, I think it's pretty safe to say that college football is in a very precarious spot. We haven't talked about college football, but that just doesn't, I don't see how that works. Yeah. And to, to the point about, you know, not, not having fans in the stands. There was actually an ESPN survey this week that came out that said that a majority of sports fans over 18 would rather watch sports without fans, but watch them on TV than wait for sports to resume with fans in attendance. So that's not surprising, but it does sort of speak to the national attitude toward, 
you know, should they, should they, are fans an essential part of the sports experience to the point that we shouldn't play games at all until they're able to come back? And they, the opinion seems to be no. So MLB is in an interesting spot because we're seeing the Korean Baseball League actually get going today. Jeff, where is MLB in its plan to restart? It's like you can't compare America to Korea with the testing. I mean, it's just not we would love to have that much testing. And and look at how that country's handled it from from the beginning compared to the way we've handled it. So it's a similar problem um, with the tests that the NBA is facing and eventually the NFL will face. And I think that's ultimately what's going to be the deciding factor here because, um you know, 26 man roster in a lot of games. But I do think the MLB's luxury is that this, as everyone knows, the season had a lot of fat on it. You can cut that down. You do not need that many games. You can still have a healthy, robust 80 game schedule that starts in the middle of the summer. And I think that's what they're talking about is just picking it up you know, whatever start date, uh, whether that's late June or early July, if that's feasible, and then just playing a, a limited schedule with fewer off days, more doubleheaders to make up some of those lost games, which, you know, I'm sure like everything else, the, the you know, the, the owners want, they want that gate revenue. Um, but it, it's better than nothing, obviously. And I, I think from a, from a, a, a sport perspective, it won't change that much. You can, you can have an 80 game season and get a pretty good sense of who the best teams are and, and not that many people are going to complain. It is interesting that we've gone through a couple of different like floated plans in baseball. And now we're back to just like just play in your <laughs> in your home uh, stadiums, home in your at your home fields. And um We'll just try to get in as many games as possible and then just go from there. Like they're kind of backing away from the hub thing and the realigned divisions, which I always hated because it would like screw with how we understand baseball. Um, so now it's funny that we've sort of gone full circle. It'll be interesting to see how many other plans come up before we actually start baseball. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how successful the Korean baseball organization is in kind of making this comeback because I agree with you, Jeff. It's like, obviously the whole country uh, of South Korea has done such a better job of handling this than, than we have in America. But at the same time, I mean, they do have a lot of practices for hygiene, like wearing masks, t- having temperature taken all the time, uh, no spitting. That's going to be <laughs> uh, no spitting in baseball are you kidding um yeah. no barehanded high fives uh you know the players are encouraged to wear masks and gloves when they're not um on the field uh and so i don't know how much of that can you kind of adopt it's it's sort of similar to what society should be thinking about at large as we start to reopen things is like make mask wearing a fundamental part of the culture you know and and not be freaked out by that, but realized that, you know, this is one of the best options that we have to stop the spread of things until the vaccine comes. Uh, and so I think in a weird way, maybe seeing that modeled in baseball or other sports will actually convince people to, to be stricter about it in, um, in society. Yeah. And the, you know, ESPN is, is broadcasting all these Korean baseball league games a week. I, mean, I can't wait. I'm going to watch it today. <laughs> I know you're all over it. But I do. I think that you're probably right. I think that will help people um, get more used to how another culture is handling this kind of thing and and maybe get us on the right page to, to think about how we you know, go forward as fans or as, you know, just people in the world. So last but not least, I know you two both have thoughts about where the NHL is at. Um, Neil, what in particular makes restarting hockey trickier than the other leagues? Yeah, well, I think the the big thing is, and, and we had a story on the site by uh, Terrence Doyle that I would um, encourage all the listeners to check out also about just how Canada plays such a larger role with hockey than any other major pro sport, uh, at least here in, in America. Uh, seven of the 31 teams are in Canada. So that's basically almost a quarter of the league. Uh, and if you look at a comparison with like, you know, the NFL, they have zero Canadian teams and, and baseball and basketball only have the Toronto teams, uh, to, to kind of worry about. But the way Canada has, has 
put policies into place uh, is very different than what we have here in the States. I think that that is going to be kind of a source of impasse for hockey in particular when they try to kind of coordinate how teams will come back. I, I think the, the X factor there is that Canada really, really loves hockey. <laughs> Wait, really? That is true. And, and it's almost like the NBA and the NFL rolled into one. They will, they will, you know, make concessions to get their hockey back. I mean, look, the, uh, the Jets, the Oilers, the Flames, they're all playoff bound. You know, they they don't want to the, the maybe Leafs, the Leafs could be the Leafs, maybe the Maple Leafs. I mean, they, you know, this is important. We we need to they need their hockey. So I think that will help. But I, I do think it's an interesting complication. Um, but it's also a complication that's existed in the NHL for a while, particularly on the economic side, you know, with the difference in the Canadian dollar and the U.S. dollar and and. And so they've navigated these issues before with our neighbors to the north. I I feel like they'll find a way to make it work if they do indeed come back. Okay, so bearing in mind that this is the beginning of May, there are a ton of unknowns and, you know, time has lost all meaning. Anyway, which league do you guys think will reopen first? I'm going to guess baseball. Ooh, interesting. Before NBA. You know, it's a good question now that I think about it, but just because of uh, we've heard July 4th floated as the baseball, um, you know, opening day and then basketball is talking about June 1st. But I don't know. I, I think the political the, the motivations to bring back uh, baseball will be strong, you know, in terms of uh, the, the the fan base and its political leaning and, and alignment compared with the NBA. So I'm going to go baseball. I could be wrong. I'm not confident in this, but I, I pick baseball. <laughs> I think what you've actually answered is which sport do you want to see back first? <laughs> That's actually I, true. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm going to actually agree with Neil here. Wow. I've had a a line for the last few weeks that I, I don't think the NBA and the NHL are coming back. I, I think at, at the end of the day, it's just, you know, this mid, you know, partial season playoffs rush is just going to prove too complicated. Um, whereas baseball, I feel like has, as all the reasons we stated, the luxury of a very long season and one that could even push later into November if they need to, that I think they'll be the ones to, to do it as well. Among them, not counting, of course, golf and NASCAR. Man, you guys are so wrong. I can't even believe it. Like the money involved with the NBA makes yeah. all those complications pale in comparison. Well, we'll have to revisit this. When the actual answer is no sports, we never get sports again. We'll we'll remember this conversation fondly. Don't say that. <laughs> Don't say that. Sorry. <laughs> okay, I think we can leave we'll this here. We'll always have virtual derbies. <laughs> yes, we always will. Okay, I think we can leave this here for now. Let's take a break, and then we'll be back with our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Take it away, Neil. Sure. So it should be no surprise to anyone that video games are becoming more popular with everyone cooped up inside uh, to try to prevent the spread of the virus. Uh, there were numbers that video game playtime was up by 45% in the last week of March. I'm sure it's gone up uh, even further since then. Uh, and And really, we're seeing sports games take really center stage uh, in terms of their partnerships with the leagues and television networks. There was an NBA 2K20 players tournament. Uh, there was also an MLB The Show league that I think had its championship over the weekend as well that aired on uh, ESPN. So you would think there would be a never a better opportunity to play sports video games than right now. The big problem, though, is that this might be the worst moment in history for sports gaming itself. Specifically, sports gamers have fewer choices now. The games that they're left with have sort of stalled out in terms of quality. Fans are very angry at them over this lack of innovation and and also just the, the amount of monetization and microtransactions that have been stuffed into the games. And to really kind of take a look at this, I looked at data from Metacritic, which is the site that aggregates uh, a bunch of reviews and gives them a zero to 100 score uh, that, that, 
you know, people in the industry look to as a, a touchstone for, you know, how critically well-received uh, a game is. And they also have these user scores where users can sort of give their own rating to the game and they'll aggregate those too. So take Madden, for instance, the EA Sports, you know, one, one of, if not the longest running uh, sports game ever. Uh, Madden 20 had a meta score of 76 and 76 sounds like, oh, that's not too bad, you know, on a zero to 100 scale. Uh, it's actually the worst in the franchise since at least 2000. Uh, and it also got a user score of 1.6 out of 10, uh, which corresponds to overwhelming dislike, according to uh, <laughs> Metacritic's guide. Tell us uh, how you really feel, Metacritic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So if you, if you kind of plot out Metascore and user score on, on an XY axis, the past four versions of Madden are the worst in the history of the franchise, at least since 2000. The Metacritic doesn't go back further than that. And they've been getting progressively worse every year. So Madden 18 was worse than Madden 17, and, and then 19 was worse than 18, and now 20 is the worst in that. And if you think that it's an EA sports problem, because EA is famously one of the most hated companies in America, and they, they won that award, uh, multiple times, uh, from consumer reports, uh, 2K sports, which is the primary rival adversary of EA sports, NBA 2K, its flagship series, also had a meta score of 78. That's the lowest in the franchise since 2000. And its user score was actually even lower than Madden's. It was 1.0 out of 10. You can look at FIFA, you know, the, uh, the EA Sports Soccer series. It had a 1.1 user score, uh, and also had its worst entry since at least 2000. Uh, EA's NHL series, uh, had not its worst meta score, but one of its worst. It was 77 uh, and one of the worst user ratings. It's a far cry from the glory days of NHL 94. Really the only game that has survived without having these embarrassing critical and or users, especially user scores is uh, MLB The Show, which is an 83 meta score, which is not great, but, you know, by its standards, but but still fine. And its user rating is 6.9 out of 10, which is much better than these other ones. It's it's just, I think, backlash over the, the games not being competitive. So, for instance, there used to be a bunch of different uh, licensed games for each league uh, on a given platform, uh, even as recently as 15 years ago. Uh, in 2002, for instance, there were four pro football simulation games on the PS2 or the Xbox, plus an arcade game and a kid-friendly game in backyard football. That's <laughs> th- that's a, a, a ton of options to fit your playstyle, if you don't like Madden, you have a, a lot of other things that you could go to. Now, ever since 2005, faithfully, when uh, NFL 2K5 uh, lowered its price and uh, outsold and was out, you know, critically received by, uh, you know, uh, over Madden uh, 2005, and then EA Sports bought the the um, exclusive license with the NFL effectively killing the 2k series uh and then you saw 2k uh pretty much in retaliation for that uh buy up the mlb license at least for third-party developers uh exclusively and killed um mvp baseball which was another beloved franchise in the past those all happened within a month of each other in in early 2005 that was the beginning of the end for uh, competition in, in major sports games. And uh, I think the beginning of the end for this downward slide in quality, because there's no incentive for Madden to get better. There's no incentive for NBA 2K to get better. I should say 2K vanquished EA's NBA Live basically on its own. Uh, NBA Live uh, was making such a poor product that they had to cancel it multiple times and they even canceled the most recent incarnation of it. So that one wasn't done through backroom dealings or, you know, kind of these shady business uh, arrangements. But I, all of, all of the trends in the last 15 years of sports gaming have been toward these de facto monopolies. Uh, and, and when you have that, you can, let the quality slide and put out just a kind of good enough product every single year. And you don't have to really worry about trying to outsell a competitor or out innovate them. Uh, And in fact, now Madden has taken to taking features out of the game that were in the game, you know, 15 years ago, and then reintroducing them and pretending like they're new features so that they can say that they added something. And that's the, that's the point that we've gotten to now uh, in, in these games, you know, we should be uh, seeing sports games, 
take on more importance than ever in the absence of real games. You've seen them, you know, be broadcast. We're now stuck with one of the one of the least satisfactory crops of sports games ever. And and I really just long for the days of of the early to mid two thousands where you would have so many more choices and you would have NFL two K five going head to head with Madden and, and actually beating it on a on a level playing field and you had MVP baseball. Um and so I'm I don't know. I'm curious of what you guys think about first of all, your experience playing sports video games. I know Sarah uh, is shaking her head right now, but also how do you feel about the fact that, you know, were we always going to trend in this direction just because of the way the businesses have have developed and that, uh, you know, it works better for the game company that gets the license and for the league itself to farm out the exclusive license? Uh, or should we go back to a previous era where, where consumers had more choice? I think it's inevitable based on this, the business model of video games. You look at the Fortnite model or Call of Duty Mobile and all these games, it's that the new model is you, you download for free and they hit you up with all the microtransactions. And that, and you know, as a, as a, having an eight year old daughter, all the games she plays, it's all about the microtransactions and all those little purchases are all supposed to be, they never give you a a competitive advantage, which is important. They just, you know, they, they're all about style and, and changing your outfit or changing your weapons. And none of it actually makes you better at the game. It's all aesthetic, which, um, obviously, you know, the sports games, we're going to go into that model eventually. And because the way they used to make money was selling new systems and selling, the actual games for $50 a pop and well, they still do that. I mean, that's the thing is Madden right, but, is trying but to have it both ways. They're trying but you're to competing sell against, you're competing against all these other games that are, that are making all these, have all these alternate revenue streams. And it's not so much about the actual game purchase. So they have to remain competitive. So it does make sense on a certain level. Um, as for my own interest in sports games, I will say I definitely hit a point. Uh, let's take Madden or even FIFA, which were probably the two I played, where it, they added enough bells and whistles each year. And I was like, I'm good. This has already gotten way too complicated. I don't need all sorts of defensive schemes and hot routes and all these things. I'm just trying to complete a pass here. I <laughs> <laughs> Trying to score a goal in soccer. I, you know, I, I'm, I might turn the offsides off. Um <laughs> I don't need more. I'd probably need less. So I'm fine. But I understand if you're a serious player that you want you want the games to keep growing. But eventually, like, they were mimicking those real sports. Like, what do you want them to do? I mean, there's nothing else they can add. So I do think they are in a precarious situation in that spot. I mean, there's only so much they can do. Yeah, but they have to be careful about losing. I mean, about just pissing off everyone who would be playing them. So, I don't know. If they're not careful, everyone's just going to play Animal Crossing instead. As well they they perhaps should. (laughs) Yeah, as well they perhaps will. All right. Well, I think we can leave that there. That will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please review and rate us on your podcast app of choice. I will read your reviews. I promise. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Shaw is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.